And good morning, Gary. Uh, good morning, Jonathan. Here we are again in the sunny southwest with Ian McDonald. Good morning, gentlemen. Thank you. Good morning and welcome. And this, this is one of those... Uh, this is why when we do face-to-face podcasts, which this is maybe the fourth one we've ever done, mm. uh, we're all in the tame, same time zone at the same time because when we tried to coordinate one with... Uh, remember with Farah, we, did, yeah. uh, we, we were doing London, we were doing Tasmania and Chicago Perth and, and Perth. Chicago. There isn't any time on the clock that's convenient yeah. for us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Welcome to the global future. Yes. Right. So Actually, I remember the first time we did a face-to-face podcast, which was last year at uh, San Jose, was it? I think it was? Yes. No, Columbus. Columbus. Columbus, yes. And it was very weird. I couldn't get, like, get over the whole fact of, like, there you were. I'm used to, like, sitting... <laughs> well, like, I'm used to sitting there with this microphone in front of me, looking at a computer screen. Yeah. And just got headphones on listening. So you suddenly have the person there, you interact in a whole different way. Anyway. So you find your verbal cues are better, so you're not kind of tripping each other up on the phone kind of thing. Well, you'd, ho- you'd hope so. You'd hope so. Well, anyway, that's why we're glad to have you here. <laughs> yeah, physically well, exactly. physically exactly. present, yes. Yes, just about. So how has your weekend been going? Uh, less busy than it could have been, um, which, is, which probably isn't a bad thing because I'm still hideously jet-lagged. Um, uh-huh. And probably jet-lagged and altitude-lagged, but... No, it's, it's, I've been enjoying it very much. Um, it's those kind of little kind of social interactions. I mean, uh, yesterday I met down at the bar in the dealer's room. I met basically my my my, my alumnus class from um, from last year from Clarion West. It was really good to see them again. Find out what they've been doing and yeah. you know who's selling and who's who's whose career is kind of moving up. And it was, it was just it was really really encouraging to kind of. Mm. See Do you think them. Clarion helps? I think it helped them. Um, yeah, it's. I think it it taps you into the network and it gives you a kind of sense of camaraderie, yeah. and that you're kind of not alone in this as well. Yeah. Um, and from the teachers, instructors' point of view as well, it's immensely exciting as well because I kind of did the last week, yeah. so so basically it might be a, you, you can't teach anyone, anyone anything by then. So in a, so in a sense, it's kind of you know you know go forth into the world, you know, imprimatur to kind of in this sign ye shall conquer kind of thing, and uh, and, and it was. I mean, I've been following them all kind of secretly and anonymously in a non-stalkerish way, kind of online to see how kind of writing careers are moving. And it's, it's no, this is this year's Clarion. No, it's this last year's Clarion. Oh, okay. uh, uh, Charlie Strauss did, did did the final class of this year's Clarion. Right. So they've had a year out in the big wide world, kind right. of stuff. To see that. And are they starting to find a home out there? Yeah, they are starting to find a home out there. Actually, um, um, yeah, uh, Casey, one of our graduates from last year, had a story in Lightspeed magazine just mm-hmm. just in the last one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Other last one or the current one, which which I was very glad to see. So, um, like selling stuff to analog, it's all you know, it's all it's all it's all building up little by little. That's. Yeah. I wonder if younger writers like that enter the field with different expectations than somebody like when you were entering the field, for example. I mean, yeah, um, I don't know. Um, it's a, it's, a, <laughs> it's certainly a tighter economy to try to break into writing. <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 always been a bad time though to kind of break into writing. I suspect well, yeah. um, the the economics are tighter, but I think there are more opportunities as well because because the genre is so fractured into subgenres, so mm-hmm. so you can target a particular subgenre. Um, but do you think it's like the music industry, where whilst there's an infinite number of opportunities, yeah. their potential the potential for them at least for to have a career is more restricted and more modest. I think you need to be prepared to reinvent yourself every so often. Um, yeah. um, I mean, I certainly know. I mean, 
Mm-hmm. I'm, 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 I'm about to veer into talking about the Younger Readers series here. Yeah, of course. In a perfectly timed segue. Oh, yeah. um, yes. But I, mean, I think you need to be, be prepared to, these days, switch genre and also switch the kind of writing you do as well. Um, I mean, I find I'm doing quite a lot more kind of sc- uh, screen writing stuff at the moment for, okay. for, for various rather exciting and very secret projects about which I cannot speak <laughs> lest my tongue be ripped from we my body and, b- <laughs> and burned to ashes before me but uh, and I think also as a writer it's a good thing I would hate to still be doing the same stuff now I was writing 10, 15, 20 20, 20, and, 20 and more years ago kind of <laughs> because you started in the early 80s didn't you? 83 was the first sale yeah and then it seems like really ramp up quickly because you had the two books out from Bantam pretty quickly after that, didn't you? Yeah, it was. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's. To be honest, I was exceptionally jammy. It is, um, as, as any fool know, it's a combination of talent and luck, and I was very, very lucky. Yeah. Uh, uh, my first editor at Asimov's, where I sold my first U.S. stories, was Sean McCarthy. Mm-hmm. Just at the time she moved over to Bantam Doubleday Dell and uh, with Lou Aronica there, and um, she sent me a letter. A letter. <laughs> <laughs> a letter of nice, nice. Could you clarify for the audience what that is? <laughs> it's, 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 it's typed with a typewriter. Hipsters will get this kind of thing. Yeah, it's it's, yeah, it's yeah. typed with a typewriter on a bill. It's sort of like someone printed out an email and followed yes, up. It, it is, yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Except, uh, except there's only one copy of it. <laughs> and, and that's in the Very episode. steampunk. <laughs> <laughs> she sent me a letter saying, saying Ian, lo- love yourself at Asimov's. Have you thought of writing a novel? That's the kind of letter which, to which the only answer is I have now. <laughs> <laughs> and that was basically, yeah, but, uh, that was Desolation Road. Um, she basically asked, you know, yeah. would you care to submit something? And then what, Desolation Road and Empire Dreams? Empire Dreams, yeah. Pretty much the same time, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. The, um, that was kind of deliberate um, because I sold Desolation Road, then I got three book contracts. I was getting married, so yeah. I, I, needed, I needed a bit of money. So I got a three book contract, excuse me. <coughs> Uh, which was Empire Dreams, uh, the book of which we do not speak, out on Blue Six. <laughs> um, no, let's talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> and King of One and Queen of Day, but we're kind of all in the same contract. Yeah. But through various rewrites that had to be done on Desolation Road, and Shauna did a damn good edit job on it, actually. Um, and was she the editor for Out on Blue Six? She was. Yeah, uh, yes, she was, yes. And then uh, Betsy Mitchell took over for... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, King of Born and Queen of Day. So, yeah. And of course, that was a. Di- I mean, not to sort of segue too far from the career itself, but that was just a different era. I mean, I yeah. mean, your, your your the commencement of your career, your career was the mass market paperback era. Yeah, all of the first yeah. chunk of novels were all mass market paperbacks. Yep, yep. All Bantam Spectre, uh, yeah. Bantam Spectre, which was created exactly for that kind of uh, kind of cheap entry point middle list writer kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, um, and yeah. It seemed it worked for me. I was mm. perfectly happy with it. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if they ever made any great money off it as publishers. But, but I think it did anyway, <laughs> because the A specials did the same thing. Uh, yeah, you know, very much. So yeah. a lot. Of, and if you look at if you look at all those original mass market paperbacks from the seventies and eighties, that's a phenomenal list of writers there. Yeah, mm, yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, lots. I mean, lots of big names came through those. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Mass market, mass market paperbacks, and it. I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it seemed to get me a lot more, <laughs> a lot more prominence because, because you're going straight onto the bookshelves, kind yes. of thing, you know. Yeah. Um, you and know, they're everywhere. And they're everywhere. That's it. Yes. Yeah. Not the oh my gosh, I happened to see a copy of your book that we, that you did for 
a small or medium press or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, of course, then there was the rise of the trade paperback, and that began to kill off the mass yes. market paperback. Yes. Rather unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, I'm still not sure, and I have to, I'm gonna, one thing I have to do when I go home, I think, because you know, obviously it's the end of August here in in Reno, is go back and reread out on blue six <laughs> because you know I need to be reconvinced that it, its name needs not to be spoken of yes, yes, yes. can I try and dissuade you okay. from it <laughs> no I mean, I mean, I mean it I'm does, sure I must know someone who'd reprint it yeah, I mean it's it does have a large <laughs> a large secret cabal of friends of fans it has followers it. I, yeah yeah, yeah uh, Cory Doctor is a big fan of it <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. I could get him to write an introduction for it I bet <laughs> <laughs> and then we're talking about obviously King of Morning Queen of Day and then, and then what was it? Kenix was the was the Africa novels? No, there was um, oh. there was King of Morning Queen of Day. There was Hearts and Voices, The Broken Land. Yeah. This was the, right. This was the time when I started having two titles: one for the UK, oh, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. one for the US. Um, Hearts and Voices was when I'd been picked up by Golanx in the UK because I hadn't had a separate yeah right. UK publisher until then. Um, that was one. That was one with a famous whitewashing cover. Mm-hmm. Um, in that, Jim Burns did the UK cover. Mm-hmm. Um, Jim's great because because he'll always phone you up and have a chat on the phone about your cover, um, and he was on the he's on the phone for about, for about you know, half an hour for forty five minutes talking about this that and the other and he said towards the end well, now I've got this right she is kind of she is black kind of Somali features rather than Bantu mm. features and, yep that's that's it said, no problem and came the cover beautiful fantastic Jim Burns cover and there she is right cover half half the front of the book Matembe you know, looking beautiful. And the US version, uh, I think Steve Yule did it, and he mm. did a fabulous cover, but she looks like Demi Moore, as, as, <laughs> as, as, as white as white can be. And that was kind of the first time I ever kind of came across whitewashing covers, and that was about 1991, 1992. Um, it had happened with Octavia Butler way before that. I'm sure it did, yeah. Um, yeah. But they, they, they couldn't, I, mean, I remember some of the original paperbacks. Um, of, uh, of, of the first trilogy were, they, they clearly could not make these characters white and they didn't want to try to make them black so they're green <laughs> <laughs> it's dark green or pale green <laughs> I think pale green but um, I guess what I want to think about is you talk about phases of your career yeah. and it seems like you know, there was that early phase where it seemed like you were working to find your voice yeah. there was a little, bit of, a little bit of running through your influences a little bit yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. There, there was there was hot sounds and voices. Then there was Necroville Stroke Terminal Cafe, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, which has just come back out again from Golanx. I've done a rather funky looking. Kind I haven't of, seen it, but I've rem- remember it very fondly. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm still a bit iffy about that one as well. I've tapped terribly hard on myself. <laughs> then I think it was. Uh, then I think it was the. Chaga, yeah, yeah. Ch- Chaga Evolution, sure. Yeah, and about that time, I I got a fairly fat advance for Chaga, too fat an advance, which which which, which meant I basically lost my US publisher there, yeah. mm. published solely in the UK, and it was not until Lou Anders at Pyre picked up River of Gods, yes, picked, picked, oh. and so that was about ten, it was about ten, eleven years I didn't have a US publisher. Yeah. So, and all of those books remain unpublished, don't they? They do, yeah. Corridia uh, uh, was never published here. Um, b- 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 Sacrifice of Fools? Sacrifice of Fools was never published in the US. Uh, Ares Express finally came out uh, yeah. in, in a rather yeah. funky pirate edition with a crack and Stephen Martin. Awesome cover, yes. Awesome cover, yeah. Beautiful. Yeah, but, but do you feel that 
the you know those books ended one phase and then River of Gods really began a different phase of what you're doing? Yeah, yeah. Um, yes, I, I had a life and career crisis in, 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 in that I had an, an unexpected and inverted marriage breakup, which um, that kind of cast me kind of into limbo for a while. Um, it was during that time I did I wrote um, uh, oh uh, what was it um, Aries Express oh yeah Aries uh-huh. Express and, um, I've, yes, I've had some fairly rude comments from a well-known Birmingham based uh, <laughs> 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 a well-known Birmingham based uh, bookseller <laughs> so, so, yes, yes that was clearly your divorce your divorce album <laughs> 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 But what it did do was, was it actually made me think what what I actually really really wanted to do, yeah, and it, and, and it was to do something insanely ambitious, which was River of Gods. So uh, uh, that was originally pitched over a boozy lunch with my agent and John Gerald at uh, at Earthlight. Yes, then he was, uh-huh. and and the, and the rest is history. Uh, it it took like five years from pitch to the actual book coming out. Yeah, in which time Earthlight vanished. Uh, but that is a long and complex story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Did that arguably work for you? Because, I mean, in many ways, River of Gods was published, and we were talking about this earlier in the weekend, so I'm kind of yeah. visiting. Um, it wasn't published as a science fiction book. No, it wasn't, yeah. It was, um, yes. <laughs> you know, Earthlight was basically killed off in, in, in by Simon and Schuster um, by their high hegen, as we say in Northern Ireland, their, mm. their, their, their CEO, um, who felt they shouldn't have a science fiction and fantasy imprint. Found baffling, but what they did have was they had a lot of books under contract, and I was about two thirds the way through it, and I'd seen um, they'd actually done cover roughs for it as well. Um, Darren Nash mm. was, was was in charge of the art for that, and this fantastic early cover, and basically it's it's David Beckham's arm, you know, the one with the Hindi tattoo on it, mm. only it says River of Gods, and then the oh, other was even a fantastic cover, and that was it. It just says Ian McDonald and this kind of great, <laughs> but anyway, um, Earthlight kind of died the death. And what happened was uh, all the authors ended up with other editors. I ended up with a guy called Ben Ball, who'd asked for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> McDonald, I have asked for you. <laughs> now we shall set to yeah, work. And he was a big, tall Australian guy um, and a very, very good editor. Now, he worked, he's worked with Chris Priest, and Chris Priest has a completely <laughs> different opinion of him. <laughs> but, but mine was absolutely perfect. He was great. He read the book. He read it twice. And he copied it with a blue pencil, a proper old-fashioned blue pencil done by hand. Mm-hmm. And he sent it back to me and said, "Cut this." And it was originally it was eight hundred pages. <laughs> he, got, he got to it's an India book. It's a big fat India. India books are big and fat. He cut it. He was right. He cut two hundred pages out, and he was, wasn't wrong on a single single thing. Uh, there was one thing I argued about, and he said, "Okay, yeah, we'll we'll do that. It works." <clears throat> so anyway, so. What he said, like, here it is, cut it down. What I'm going to do is I'm going to publish this book, and it's not going to say the word science fiction anywhere on it at all. Because they didn't have a science fiction imprint, and also he didn't want it to have those words yeah. on mm-hmm. it. Because if you do that, you end up at the back of the, at the back of the store rather than the front of the store. So what he did, it was a, he did a fantastic design job. We, uh, we spent about two or three weeks talking about the title, because originally it was going to be called Cyberbad. And I said, nope, sounds, sounds too science fiction. <laughs> change it. So, so it ended up R- R- River of Gods by a long compromise we came up with. And it's good. Um, we've got the cover proof. It's, it's that big blue Simon & Schuster hardback one with, yeah. you know, uh, with, with, the big, with the big Vishnu in the middle. 
and it says, "We regard Zoom Donald, uh, August something, twenty forty-seven. Uh, happy hundredth birthday, India." That's the only thing that gives you any hint at science fiction uh-huh. at all on it. Uh, out it came, and what happened was because it didn't say science fiction, it ended up at the front of the bookstore at Waterstones and mm-hmm. and all those um, on the three for the price of two table, rather than at the back, you know, with it, with with the science fiction books. And it was a kind of thing because it was a mighty handsome looking book, you know, so people uh-huh. kind of like thumb through it. Oh yeah, kind of like the look of that, and they buy it, and, and then you know what it, what he found was was that. You know, science fiction people, uh, readers who like my work would find it anyway. Uh, Non-science fiction readers would pick it up, read, it and go, "That was science fiction. I rather enjoyed that." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what um, what uh, Simon Spatton at Gollings calls the lapsed Catholics, who are the people who used to read science fiction in their teens and twenties and kind of drifted away from mm. it. It kind of drew them back to the genre again because it, it sounds awfully egotistical, <laughs> but 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 you know. They, you know, it was a kind of book that showed that the genre had moved on a bit. And, and but there was also some main, some, some general literary response to it. There so was. you were getting the non-science fiction. Yeah, 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 yeah. I remember people comparing it to Midnight's Children, yeah, for example, yeah, because yeah, yeah. Um, some, another writer who's been sympathetic to science fiction. Yeah, exactly. Yes. I mean, I mean, these these demarcations and boundaries are not as 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 hard as we think they are. I mean, I mean, there are there are an awful lot of lapsed Catholics out there who who've grown up with. And a lot of them are mainstream writers as well, but you can see their, you know, their mm-hmm. their their genre love is in there. Um, yeah. Did you get a sense though that, um, in that th- those genre barriers that we're talking about? Because I know you spent a lot of time traveling, preparing yeah. all these novels. Uh, if, if if readers in India or or, or Brazil or if, if non-American readers are less aware of the boundaries to begin with, I think so. Um, I think the boundaries. I'm not sure about the US. I think in the UK the boundaries are pretty tightly policed <laughs> by the by the genre cops. I'm not sure. I mean, I don't have enough experience of the way the market works in the US to know if that's the case or not. Certainly in France, the, the genre boundaries seem to be an awful lot more fluid and flexible. Yeah. Um, I mean, I tend to do like two writing festivals per year in France these days, which which is great. Mm-hmm. But certainly, I'm always I mean. I'm always on panels with like non with with non science fiction writers and non fiction writers as well, so mm-hmm. they do seem to kind of think that, that you know that there's a, a genre permeability there that that you know, that isn't quite so tightly policed. I mean, out in in the in the developing world, I think it's yeah. I mean, I think it's much less tightly defined um, in my limited experience of it. Well, I mean. Uh, <coughs> I mean, my sense is that something like I mean, R- River of Gods. Well, all three of them now are are clearly being kept alive by an increasing science fiction readership. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that might be the best of both worlds. If you have a breakout uh, sort of mainstream bestseller, which will go away, but then if it's a good science fiction novel, it will not go away. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it's something. It's something. Me and my beloved agent are a kind of. Aiming, aiming, aiming me towards is is, is 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 that kind of it's science fiction for people who who, who hate science fiction, um, but it, but 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 it should appeal to science fiction science fiction readers as well. You know, it's it's that it's those lapsed Catholics, and, and there are a lot of them out there. Um, because readers in general, I I don't think are are unsympathetic to science fiction. I think one of the things that's fascinating about 
all three of, the, of, of, of these books. Is a, especially when I'm talking about um, starting with River of Gods and ending up with Dervish House, you get less far away in the future with each successive <laughs> novel. And, 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 and yeah. pretty soon you're going to be writing historical fiction. Because it's just <laughs> Oddly enough, you are so, so wrong. <laughs> yeah, the, the project I'm trying, to, I'm, I'm trying to set at the moment, um, the, the next adult novel rather, rather than the, the, the younger reader stuff, uh, Hopeland, I always call it the Hopeland Project. <laughs> when it's sold, it becomes Hopeland. But at the moment, it's the Hopeland Project. I mean, I mean, that one starts twenty minutes from now, basically. And okay. Ends about ends about <laughs> ends about twenty years. From now. What's the touch on something? Because it, it seems to me that your novels have got closer and closer and closer to today. Uh, yes, they have. <laughs> and, well, I guess. <laughs> Is that because you don't see an you know interest or value in setting a you know going a far a great distance into the future? Is it more about you know, sort of confronting the world we're living in and working out the stories that arise from it and how that can talk about the situation we find ourselves in in the early twenty first century? I'm interested in that at novel length, um, at story length. I'm quite quite happy to do kind of big far future uh-huh. space spacey stuff. I mean, mm. I mean I've I've got this kind of loose, <laughs> kind of loose, kind of space opera. Thing. I think it was, I, th- I think I did a story for you, wasn't it? The, um, which I've forgotten the name of. Mm. It was like the bonsai space opera in about ten pages, and the yes. universe is destroyed and recreated. Yes, in, a, in, in the new space opera. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah. And I'm, I'm, at short lengths, I, I find that kind of entertaining because I like the idea of kind of distilling big space opera stuff down to kind of a shorter form. Mm. So. So I do have a kind of a my kind of space opera for our future thing, which 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 I'm not going to abandon any day soon because it's fun. But uh, but in in the novels at the moment, this this of course may change. Yeah. Well, I think it, you know, and it's one of those things we've talked about this a few times. We were talking with Stan, Stan Robinson earlier that there, <coughs> there there's a kind of move, there's a kind of way of writing, there's there's, there's a kind of narrative choreography. That reads like science fiction, whether it's science fiction or not. Yes, that yes zero yes. history reads like science fiction. Yeah, I've talked to people who read it through and didn't realize it wasn't science fiction. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um. But the other thing that's going on, which I think is fascinating, and I don't know if it's a coincidence or if these things are related. Obviously, when you start writing about India uh, or Brazil or, or, or Turkey, uh, you're increasing the multicultural awareness of. Of the fact that the future is not just ours, it's mm. not just Anglo-American. And that's happening at the same time that there are a lot of really interesting voices coming into science fiction Absolutely. from Barbados. So the, Car- yeah. the ones in Barbados and the Caribbean are the ones I'm more familiar with, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Karen Lord, and, or, or writers like Nettie Okorafor, who, who's an American, but nevertheless. Um, and suddenly, uh, I think that's another argument for keeping it fairly close to the, to the, to the near future, is that Near future science fiction has been done to death as far as New York City is concerned. Yeah, yeah. but not as far as Lahore, for example. <laughs> yeah, um, very much. Uh, I mean, I mean, in a sense, I'd much rather somebody read, you know, the great Indian, the great Indian cyberpunk novel written by an Indian cyberpunk writer. Well, actually, I'd much rather know. I'd, I'd, I'd actually quite like them to read both. Thank you very <laughs> much. <laughs> to be honest, to be honest, to be, to be brutally honest here, you know. <laughs> Any feedback from that? Like you're appropriating other cultures? Oh or? yeah, all the time. Most of it comes from American lib- uh, American liberal arts graduates. <laughs> very, very little comes from India. I would imagine. Yeah, um, interesting enough. So, but so the book was published there, wasn't it? Oh yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's it's been published there, and 
around, I got some beautifully grudging compliments, kind of thing. I was sort of thinking, yes, well done for Agora, you know, which is kind of a foreigner. Yeah, right, right. Say, Damn it, I wish we'd thought of this. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough, guys, you know. It's, uh, yeah. but, but one of the things that, that, that is interesting, or I mean, I work um, across, across the, the, hall, the, the hall from the office I work, there's an animation company, and they have an awful, and they use a lot of Indian animators. And they all know their mythology inside out in a way that we don't mm, in the West. Yeah. You know, they know all the stories of the Ramayana and the and the Barabarata. They're all there in the in in the really? Indian psyche, and and they and they grew up in them. You know, and they'll see things. Um, Street, who's the, who's the lead the lead illustrator and an animator, will, will kind of see stuff in kind of Western films, and, and you know he's. He's a big movie and gaming fan, but he'll see stuff and then relate it to stuff that's kind of in in Indian mythology, which is very very interesting. And I mean, the bits of Indian science fiction and fantasy I've been I've been reading really draw very heavily, um, and, mm. and, and and rightly so on on the not just on the richness of their led myths, legends, and, and and culture, but also on the way it's per- that everybody knows it and it's so totally permeated society. In a way that we kind of don't have in the West. I was we, going to say that that's one of the things that <clears throat> a common set of reference, which yeah. at least a hundred years ago the Bible would have been familiar to anybody, and probably fifty years before that, most of classical mythology, and as well as Shakespeare and Milton and so yes, forth. Yeah, but yeah. you no longer can write and you can no longer can make an illusion and assume, at least in America, that anybody in the audience is going to necessarily uh, pick up on that. So. Yeah. I was at a, a panel yesterday. Um, it was the reading for reading for kids, basically. It was, oh. it was me, Rachel Swirsky, uh, Patrick O'Gillen. Um, I've forgotten a couple of other names, so do right. so 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 do forgive me. Uh, Patrick kind of was chatting to me. I said, "I can't read this. It's, it's full of zombies getting killed with crossbow bolts in their heads, and there's a six-year-old kid in the cast there. I can't do this." So what he did was he started telling a story. And I knew what the story was. It was the beginning of the of, of the off the Hound of Ulster, the story of Cuchulain, yeah. uh-huh. of of Satanta. And the thing of things he knew it, and I knew it as well. You know, so so yeah. so in Ireland, you know, we are pretty. Um, you know, I was taught this stuff at school. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, we, 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 uh, you know, first first year in secondary school in the English class we all read The Hound of Ulster so we, so, mm. so we knew so we knew our mythology and he knew it and I knew it and what was what was interesting was somebody in the audience asked him said, is, this, is this a book you're writing he said actually no this, this actually is the but so so, so, so I'm, I'm kind of in, I was encouraged by that you know that you know that, that, that you know maybe in Ireland maybe in Scotland you know there are places in the West where we, we, we still have that where the mythos still lives, kind of thing. Well, and <coughs> when you're moving into young adult fiction, which I suppose we should spend some time talking about, <laughs> yeah. but is that a different set of challenges that you don't know what the um, what the readership you don't know what the readership knows? Yes, you're absolutely right. Yeah, it, it, it is pretty much feeling it out. Um, then again, I have the advantage of, of like all human beings. I was 14 once, which was <laughs> just kind of yeah. <laughs> and what I do remember, I remember uh, about being 14. Um, Lou and I had a big discussion about what the age of the character should be. Originally, it was thirteen. We've aged him slightly to fourteen. Um, it's apparently it's all to do with reading groups and yeah. It's 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 you know it's kids read up to the next level. Yeah, yes, it's 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 kind of a Jesuitical and it's cunning all these kind of various reading ages and middle grade all that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, I mean, 
what I do remember being a 14 year old is how bloody miserable it was for the rest of the time. It was awful. <laughs> really was pretty, pretty grim. Uh, and it's, yeah, it's a funny. It was the age I read the Lord of the Rings, so, uh-huh. so it's 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 kind of at that age where kind of fantasy and genre really becomes kind of part of your psyche. You know, rather, than rather than something you read and enjoy, it becomes something you, you identify with at about that age. So, something, something, so exactly what Joe Walton is talking about. In, uh, yes, in, yeah, in, in exactly. If you're, if you're at the right age. Mm. And it, it becomes you're right. It becomes part of it. Yeah, and she, and she pegs it and she pegs it exactly right as well. Actually, yeah. it, 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 it. I mean, for all of us who grew up reading, there are those little moments of free song pleasure. There, so yeah, I did that too. Mm-hmm. Kind of like, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, Joe and I are exact, almost exactly the same age, and went through almost exactly the same reading experiences, if not life experiences. Yeah, yeah. And so it's hard not to have it resonate. Yeah, yeah. So I guess I mean, we're sort of talking about it a little bit, but. What drove what what motivated you to uh, m- progress from you know uh, the Dervish House to writing a, a young adult science fiction trilogy? Yeah, well, tri- it's 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 more than a trilogy. I've I've sold the first three parts, but but, but the art, but the story does not finish in volume three. Oh, oh my God! Like George Martin. But there, there are more. It's several things. Um, I had a story that would only work that way. Actually, and, mm-hmm. that, and oddly enough, that was the, the first, the first and primary consideration. You know, rather rather than cynically saying, you know, well, th- this is where the money and the audience are. Now, that is a that of course is a consideration, mm-hmm. but certainly it was a story that wouldn't work any other way. Um, so, that was the first consideration. I also thought it was time to do something a bit different. You know, I didn't want to be, you know, that, that. You know that that tourist white guy kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, um, yeah. Mm. Uh, so it, it was time to kind of change direction a bit as well and try something different. And, and, and it was something I wanted to do. And yeah, um, and they're kind of easy. Well, I wouldn't say they're easy, but no, they are easy. Comparatively speaking, though, we were talking easier than writing River of God. Yes, yeah. I, I mean, I, I've I've got like you know, it's it's like twelve beats per book. One kind of main viewpoint character. I'm opening up the secondary characters in the second book, but I'm not like weaving nine or ten story strands together <laughs> and flow charting them and doing them on spreadsheets to see how they move. So no, so it, it is it is and it's fun. It, actually, it's fun, and I can get all those little kind of. Little kind of like you know descriptive beats. They're st- they're still all in there, but they're just toned down a bit. You know, mm. so, you, know you know, there'll be just like one little image or something that, that you know that'll kind of t- kind of leaven the kind of non-stop action. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. could you talk about just give us an idea of the setting? Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, at the moment it's 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 it's, it's, it's jumping through about. Several parallel universe versions of Hackney, actually, but, <laughs> but that but that's just coincidental. Right. Yeah, the 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 hero uh, Everett Singh, his dad, is kidnapped three days before Christmas. Um, his 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 dad's a physicist who's been uh, unbeknownst to Everett working on a parallel world's communication project, mm-hmm. and has 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 has, has developed un, uh, with with his team unknown to anyone else a prototype Heisenberg Gate, which is kind of the the portal to, mm. to parallel universes, but his dad is kidnapped, and uh, ever this is all chap- chapter one, and chapter two. Oh, so it's yeah. On, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and 
he doesn't know why, uh, so he tries to find out. And then what he finds is that on his iPad has given him this 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 app appears. He he downloads it from his Dropbox onto his iPad, and what it is, it's what his dad's been working on, which is what the bad guys want, which oh. is a thing called the Infundibulum, which is the map of all the possible parallel universes. Through so it's like um. It's like time bandits, basically. <laughs> you know, it's got the map of the wormholes. I was, I was wondering. Yeah, I was wondering about the term infundibulum because yeah. is it chronosynclastic? Chronosynclastic infundibulum. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yes, it's, it's always one for a good mouth-filling word. Actually, that was the science of Titan. It was. Yes. Yeah, it was. Yeah. <clears throat> and yeah, if, if, if you're going to nick, nick from the best. <laughs> so yeah. So anyway, so uh, Everett has this thing. He's pursued. He wants to find his dad, but he's pursued by the bad guys, led, led by this splendid villainess who always dresses in 1940s outfits <laughs> <laughs> because it's, there's nothing more villainous looking. <laughs> um, and he, he he kind of he kind of flees into. There are kind of nine parallel worlds that mm-hmm. kind of all communicate with each other. And he, he kind of goes on the run to try and find his dad. Adventure ensues, great characters, and of course airships. But airships that can jump between parallel universes. How cool is that? And it's fun. I like, I like the characters. I've, I've had this right in my head for quite a long time. It's fun to do. And yeah, and it's a concept you don't have to introduce to uh, readers now because parallel worlds are now part of exactly. pop culture. Mm, know, exactly. TV... Um, um, no, there are two or three popular TV series. Sliders that, was that. Sliders was yeah. um, was one. There is um, oh fringe. Sci- fringe, Fringe, Fringe is completely yeah, working yeah. up uh, parallel. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So I mean, it's one of the things I think we can be grateful to movies for doing is um, after Back to the Future, all kids understood time travel paradoxes yes. and that sort of thing. Yeah. And prior to that, it would be, it would have been difficult to sell that idea to a kid. I think. I mean. Uh, Occasionally, you get Madeline Lingle and doing that, that sort mm. of thing. Yeah. But now you probably can make a. When I said knowing what your readers know, you can probably make a lot more assumptions about. I think you can. Fourteen-year-olds yeah. than you yeah. could have. Yeah, I mean, Doctor Who is particularly good for kind of introducing time mm-hmm. travel paradoxes and, and, and right. the most amazingly complex plotting sequences <laughs> yeah. as well, which all makes sense. I mean, yeah. I mean, I mean, kids, kids, kids get the stories in Doctor Who. You know, you know, yeah. you know they're not confused. You know. You know, they know how all these things will loop through and tie yeah. together. Yeah, yeah. And I think, and I think his, I think his his dark materials as well. The 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 sure. and all yeah. that. Yeah. Well, because I think my t- my ten year old daughter may be interested, even though you do commit one terrible mistake on her. Oh, what? It's a boy. <laughs> well, yes, it's a boy, but he's got a girl. She, she's not. She's not a girl sidekick. She's the pilot of the airship, but she's thirteen, and, all. <laughs> <laughs> and she's unspeakably precocious. As well. <laughs> if I like terrified, if she's so precocious, our hero is a bit scared of her. Actually. So I'm gonna take her to my precocious ten-year-old and say, "Try this." Yeah, yeah, it'll stretch her. Um, and I, yeah, and I kind of like that. I mean, I years ago I did some work with Sesame Workshop mm-hmm. um, on a Northern Ireland version of Sesame Street. And they basically taught us how to write and think the Sesame Workshop way. And one of the things they said is never ever write down, always write up. You know, always, always, you know, if it's something people don't quite understand, you know, if you interest them and make it kind of exciting, mm-hmm. you know, they'll go, they'll go and find out more about it, you know, and, and, and you'll draw people up. So, yeah, in the book, there are bits of quantum physics for like, for like, for like teenagers, you know, mm. but they've got that kind of thing of, is it really like that? Wow, you know, yeah, <laughs> kind, yeah, of, kind yeah. of stuff. You know, it's 
because our heroes have kind of grown up with it from his dad, you know. Yeah. And, and you, but so so there are bits of kind of proper hard science throughout, but they won't trip you up. You don't you don't need to understand them to make sense of the story. But 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 if you if if you like it, it will draw you on to kind of. I think one of the other things you can do today that maybe you couldn't do twenty years ago is assume that especially young readers are going to Google anything they don't like. Yes, immediately. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, my daughter's certainly you know, grown up with a what's that? Well, I'll fire Google or Wikipedia, yeah. and, I, and I will know yeah. more than I want to know. In fact, the, the yeah. only problem that she has, and it is a twenty-first century issue, is how to prioritize the importance of the information. Yes. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Yes, that that you start at Wikipedia, but you don't end at Wikipedia. It's, it's kind of a but also, I mean, <coughs> she, she does a lot of uh, tasks where it's like, come and tell the school about X. Yeah, she had to do a thing, and she did a thing on, um, oh, I forget what it was, but it was going through and going. Well, she did a thing on Mercury mm. actually, mm. just recently. I was like, well, she was trying to work out what an eccentric orbit was and what that meant. Mm. Yeah, you know, when you're you know, being <coughs> nine, and you're sort of, what? In fact, she said, no, what's what's eccentric? All right. And that kind of thing. So it's, yeah. it's an interesting, strange time to be growing up. But of course, that is opening up, as you say, the range of possibilities for someone trying to write for that audience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, I, mean, I assume that people that that, that, that that kids would Google stuff that they don't yeah, get. Yeah. You know, if they're interested, if they're not, then they can glide over it and go straight on. I mean, another thing uh, Lou said when he was editing, he said actually he reads quite a lot of stuff for this age group, and he said you actually get the whole connected IT. Mobile, mobile phone, uh, social networking technology thing. Um, I mean, I mean, the hero, the hero uses it right from the very start. So an awful lot of writers don't do that for, for the kids. Actually, which yeah. I thought was surprising, but because it's it seemed natural to me that you know that of course he'll have all his mates on Facebook and all that, <laughs> and, and he will have a Dropbox for files, and you know his his iPad and his cell phone are linked, and, and this this. The stuff he can do with it and all that, and you know, it, it, it seemed natural that, of course, they they grew up with that kind of technology. So it's going to be it'll be part of their lives. It's yeah. part of the story. One of the things that happens with, I mean, yeah, when when a writer, especially a science fiction writer, and usually an older male science fiction writer, and usually the very late Arthur Clarke, tries <laughs> tries to tries to invent tries to create a world in which. Um, of cell phones or, uh, or or Google and that sort of thing, they're they're trying to sound very very current. But the result is that first of all, they present these things as innovations, which you're right. To the kids, they're not. Yeah, the yeah, kids are yeah. just part of the background. Exactly. And secondly, the more you do that, the more you're in danger of being completely outdated by the time the book comes out. Yeah. Uh, right. We found out at my university, for example, the admissions office a couple of years ago started sending out emails because they realized that mailing physical brochures to kids didn't do any good. Mm, mm. <clears throat> this year they were told by the consulting firm, nobody nobody under the age of 30 reads emails anymore. <laughs> <laughs> now you've got to do Twitter. And by the time, you know, and, then you, and maybe maybe Facebook, but maybe, you know, next year it's going to have to be Google Plus. Yeah. So you just, or whatever it might be. Whatever yeah. it might be. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I'm a complete Facebook diffusenik because I, I find it creepy. In, it in is. Every it is creepy. Way. Twitter, great. Yeah. yeah. yeah it's, it's it's modern haiku for everyone, like, yeah. and I like that. But 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 certainly certainly social networking is a is a bit eerie. And I was reading recently in one of the papers that now it was it was the Daily Telegraph in the UK, which is famed for its somewhat staunch right wing stance. Mm. But it did say that certain that 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 teenagers were abandoning social networking. About a third who start give up. After, uh, after about six I've months, seen which, which like is that. interesting. Because one of the things when they talk about how many billion people are on Facebook is. 
how many of those are active accounts is another question altogether. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, and and no one has that many friends. There aren't friends. <laughs> yeah, one of the other things I I don't know whether this is going to be. Uh, I guess in a parallel world, you're going to have to deal with historical differences. And yes, anomalies, which is something you deal with in a very fascinating way because <clears throat> I, you know, what what Jack Williamson called the John Barr point. The shift. yes, yeah. um, and. To write about a contemporary world in which we recognize that those have happened, what I'm getting at is the thing that struck me, that for some reason really struck me about Brazil, was the nineteen the business about the 1950 World Cup. Yes, <laughs> and it, it just never occurred to me that that's the most important thing. And these people have grown up in the shadow of this event, yeah, yeah, which yeah. to most American readers is like. What? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I might have slightly overplayed it, but certainly people did commit suicide after Brazil lost the World Cup. Yeah. Which is, there's a, you know, a tram driver jumped in front of his own tram and killed himself after mm. it. But they also believe that everything that went wrong with their country. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Trace back to that moment. Exactly. Yeah, 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 exactly. Exactly. Yes. All their hopes and aspirations were pinned on that because because they built what they thought was the most beautiful stadium and the most beautiful city in the world, and mm. they got kicked by their. By their very very minor neighbours. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Those kind of, kind of cattle ranchers and sheep shaggers from down there beat us in our own state. It was, it was a real, real sense of national disgrace. It was. <laughs> but, yeah, and, and why not? I mean, I. <laughs> well, it makes you wonder about moments in history that most of us would not mm. think of as being that crucial. Yes, yeah, that, that becomes points of departure. Yeah. I, I think I'm doing the current. Uh, in book two of the series, uh, Everness. Um, no, no, tell a lie. No, it's actually in book. It's actually in book one. Ah. <laughs> um, the parallel, the parallel world he jumps to. Um, I read something in New Scientist a while back, a, c- a couple of years back, uh, about things that almost happened in history. Yeah, and I, it, it wasn't Faraday, but it was somebody like him, uh, mm-hmm. an English visit, uh, scientist, almost invented the electric motor in seventeen eighty. And the, and the and the and if he had an electrically powered eighteenth century, is an awesome idea. Uh-huh. In fact, it was so awesome I stole it, stuck it into the <laughs> stuck it into this book. So, so he arrives in the world and looks around. Oh, steampunk! They're actually, actually it's not steampunk. It's electropunk. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, they've, yeah. They've, they've they've had a fully working electrically powered society since since the since the early nineteenth century. But yeah, it's it, it, it's it is it's. It's those little things that kind of how the world would turn out differently. Yeah. I'm curious that you wrote the three novels you did in River of Gods, Brazil, and Dervish House, yep. and never went to Ireland. I've done that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. Yes, did that in a much more surreptitious way. Uh, King of Warning Queen of Dave is about yeah. Ireland. Yeah, you know, yeah, that's yeah. that's uh-huh. the three-part fantasy novel. Yeah. Um, then there was then there was the Broken Man, Stroke Hearts, Hands, and Voices, which is about Ireland, though not in Ireland. I mean, basically, I'm mm. retelling 20th century Irish history. Sure, sure, right. And then, and then there's uh, the most overt one, which is uh, Sacrifice of Fools, ah. which is on set in Belfast, mm. which which came about a simple observation from watching the movie Alien Nation, which I thought was a great idea done really badly because it ends up as a silly run around shoot shoot 'em up drug story rather. Than, and I thought, what if instead of Los Angeles, what what if they bought all the aliens from Northern Ireland? As a kind of political tool, so you got <laughs> Protestants, Catholics, and a, sh- and a shitload of aliens. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's yeah, I kind of like it. Um, the mighty Nicholas White, as, uh, as far as I know, has got a point. Uh, <laughs> once wrote, I used to write. Uh, he 
he used to work in the office opposite the location of the first murder in the story. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's that specific to Belfast. You can okay. pinpoint the streets in it. So yeah, I have done Ireland. It's just nobody's read them. <laughs> <laughs> Is there any attempt or thought to bring those books back? King of Morning Queen of Day came out in France a couple of years ago and got like a load of press and, and won several prizes there, interestingly enough. Um, it's the one I'd like to see back most in print um, because I still like it as a book. Um, it's it's very, very early 1990s. <laughs> and, and that, I, I kind of like that. This is kind of like early rave culture and all that, which is right. super stuff. And, and I kind of like that, the, the fact it's now, it's now an, his, it's, it's an it's, historical. It's an historical text. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of I think like to kind of feel like an early urban fantasy, <laughs> <laughs> long before there was urban fantasy. But no, but still like it that one actually. Are you going to be writing this indefinite series of young adult in tandem with writing that's, uh, your next? Okay, yeah, that's that's the idea. Have you done that before? No, oh. I've done I've written stuff and done screenwriting stuff at the same time. Uh-huh. But it is it is very much. Keeping the two things separate and doing uh-huh. them, doing them at different times of day and all yeah. that. And so, um, I mean the the adult one, the Hopeland project. Um, I've got to do some sample chapters on it, and I'm really blocking myself on it because because it is such a departure. It's it's, it's kind of a multi generational love story with Tesla coils and climate change and economics. It's it's there's there's a lot in there but but it's all, it's all based around this family and this love story. Does, does anybody is it, is it, this is just a curiosity of something I've been noticing. Is anybody going to meet Tesla? Uh, no nobody meets Tesla. Okay, good. <laughs> Tesla is all over science fiction and mainstream he fiction is, these days. He is very it's yeah, interesting enough he he's the ultimate steampunk hero but he never did anything much with steam, really. It was it was all electricity. Actually, he's the steampunk villain in the Scott Western. Is he? Yeah. The third volume of that trilogy. He is literally a mad scientist. Because <laughs> <laughs> he was in the Prestige as well in, in, in yes. the movie. It was yeah. splendidly played by David Bowie with a <laughs> right. terrifying moustache. So, yeah. And I was out in Serbia last year. Uh, my Serbian publisher, Goran, uh, brought me out to Belgrade. And he'd written a... a, a, a and Science fiction novel. Actually, this goes back to what you were saying oh. about how science fiction works in other countries. He'd he'd written a science fiction novel called Killing Tesla, which is a damn good title. <laughs> <for her. laughs> and he got site number two in the fiction charts mm. in, in in Serbia. I like all the fiction charts. Yeah. Yeah, with, with, so obviously, that you know, you know, in you know, in the former Yugoslavia, you know, likewise, there doesn't seem to be that kind of strict genre boundary. Mm-hmm. Then again, any book called Killing Tesla, I think anyone in Serbia well, is yeah, buy sure, yeah. <laughs> But yeah. I'm curious, I've spoken to a lot of people this weekend about the idea that core science fiction is in retreat at the moment. We're seeing less of it published. Yeah. And I'm curious about what you think about where science fiction is as a project in 2011. Um, yeah, that's, I think you're right. Um, I think the core is in retreat because I think it's been... A, I think it's moved on to screen. I think nowadays when people think of science fiction, they think of either movie science fiction or televisual science fiction. And that's claimed the traditional heartland of SF, you know, the starship, the time mm. travel, the, yeah. you know, the kind of, you know, b- big future run around and shoot. I mean, games as well has, has, has kind of claimed a lot of the kind of um, starship troopers kind of. Yeah, yeah. Um, even the forever war kind of, you know, armoured future mercenaries kind of stuff. So I, I have a feel, I feel that the that 
that much of the heartland has moved onto screen in various incarnations. I'm not quite sure what to do with it after that. Um, it is interesting, though, that you know these things kind of go in waves. Mm. Um, you know that that kind of I, I would say planetary romance, mm. but it's not. But solar system kind of. Uh, Future solar system stuff is kind of back into vogue again. We, um, it is. Cape Stanley Robinson. Stanley Robinson. Yeah. 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 And there's um, Paul McCauley's Quiet War and all that. Yes. I mean, I mean, it's it, that's back in vogue again, and that's and that's very interesting actually, so, because it's something that hasn't doesn't that that doesn't work on television. Um, yeah. It's, it's, it's usually starships or starship troopers, but it's yeah. never solar system stuff. Yeah. Well, it would work on television if it were uh, if they could afford to do the. Elaborate. Well, I mean, uh, the Stan Robinson's things. You've got scenes on you know, Mercury and, and Mars. Well, you do, and, and, and some of them there's all these great, yeah, fantastic visual yeah, images. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, his city of Terminator, yes, is a great visual image. You know, where it's trundling on its rails across the surface of Mercury, driven by the expansion of the rocks, yeah, yeah. and the whole terraforming of Venus. You can imagine, you know, the smashing asteroids into the surface of the planet, putting great big shades to cool yep. all that kind of stuff. But whether it makes story that will work on te- yeah, television exactly. is a whole other thing. Yeah. But I think what's exciting about the solar system stuff is at some point you can say this is real. You know? Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's not some made-up planet around you know Alpha Centauri, whatever. You know, I mean, this is what Mercury is like. This is what Mars is like. You know? It occurs this to me na- now, talking about this, is there possibly some kickback in science fiction about the decline of the space program? In other words, look, we're mm. telling. These these future these short these futures again, yeah. which show us moving out from Earth in just the way we're not. Yes, because it's plausible in these ways, and these are the reasons. I mean, it may not be plausible to leave our solar system and go yes. out into, into deep space. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. Yes, I, I mean, I think it's showing, you know, that we have kind of lost that kind of outward vision, and that there are places out there, while not entirely hospitable, are not entirely hostile either. Mm-hmm. You know, and 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 we can do something with them and find and find other niches for humanity and, and build and and build other civilizations and mm. cultures, and that can be, be in a sense as diverse as you know as interstellar galactic em- star spanning galactic empires with spaceships with lots of windows in them kind of stuff. Well, it's funny that the star spanning galactic empire feels less relevant than it ever has before. It does. It 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 does. Yeah, um, and I think it's because. That bit has moved on to television, yeah. you know, and, mm. and and essentially you you can see the limitations of television yeah. on it. You know, it's it's you know we can do one process shot with a starship every week, kind of thing. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, in a sense, you know, it's and those kind of limitations maybe kind of reflect the kind of limitations mm. that you know that we have as species. You know, yeah. that you know that that it is ridiculous that mm. humans and big spaceships with lots of windows will reach the stars. What gets? Ah, I finally got to my point here. <laughs> what? Yes. Welcome to the podcast. Yes. What? What? What will reach the stars will be nothing like us. Yeah. We are not an interstellar right. species yet, but we may be a solar species. Well, we may not be interested in it uh, either. Yeah. I think that's the other yeah. question about priorities, because there was this flurry back in the uh, oh ten ten or so years ago when Steve Baxter and Michael Flynn and people were writing alternate NASA's. This yes. is what should have happened. Yeah. This is uh, the, you know, the, the these are the different ways that we could either resurrect the space program now or do it from England or maybe we should have done and that that's it was kind of a fascinating mm. exercise in alternate history that seems to have just disappeared yeah, um, yeah. and yeah. no one expects any kind of a resurrected space program now well certainly the one thing I haven't seen yet in this idea of reinvigorating 
the science fiction mission. I mean, it, yes. I mean, science fiction mission always was mm-hmm. get us into space, yep, yep. get us off the planet, and explore that. Um, I've yet to see the steps from here to there. That's mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. That's, yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, I, I've seen a number of people going, well, you know, 2011 to 2100 is going to be pretty bleak time, climate change, all that sort of thing. And then I think, well, Stan Robinson lays it out like basically his, his critical point is functional space elevator technology. Yes. You, right. get, you get like half a dozen big space mm-hmm. elevators up and suddenly we're off the planet. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. 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 Uh, and that's, that's the first time I've really seen that kind of thing being touched on in any way. Um, you know, when it, and, yet you, and you compare that, I mean, I was talk, think, talking about the way we looked at it before. I, I read a few years back John Scalzi's Old Man's War, yes. which I don't know if you've read. Long time ago, yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But basically, you, you may recall, I mean, he gets off the planet, suddenly he's on the space station, and it's the carnival of alien life going yes, past. Yes, yes, yeah. And I totally balked. <laughs> it was completely implausible to me mm. that there would yes. be this plethora of, in, you know, of intelligent life just on the other side of this tissue-thin yes. veil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? And I don't know that we can sell that future anymore. I don't even, think we can, yeah, yeah. Even in a Babylon 5 kind of a universe. Yes. I, I still have a very soft spot for Babylon 5. I mean, I, I was... Um, the first series was, was, was a bit weak and the writing was dreadful and the acting was worse, but it had the big fission thing in spades yeah, did, and yeah. all yeah. that. But I was kind of, I was I was such a geek that I actually I used to take them all on VHS and I'd watch the space battles twice. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, yeah, but but yes, but that kind of kind of solar system thing, I think I think is interesting, and, and I think Stan's right. You know that that's, they're talking now rather than you know kind of future booster rockets and new space shuttles. You know, I think we'll go from booster technology to space elevator fairly quickly as soon as they solve. I mean, they've got the raw materials there. It's interesting how things become a convention, uh, partly because of just being forced to think of this as, a, as something that's going to happen. The space elevator was in the fountains. It was the fountains of paradise. Yeah. paradise yeah. <clears throat> that was such a radical, bizarre yes. idea. And now uh, John Slonsuski's new novel is great space elevators made out of anthrax. <laughs> Apparently you can do this with anthrax, Priscilla, and they have a tensile strength, which is phenomenal. <clears throat> but... Here the innovation is that it's it's an anthrax space elevator, but the space elevator itself is like a rocket ship. It's something we just now accept. We yes, know yeah, it's yeah. part of the furniture. It's like the way that cyberpunk kind of faded into the background of all science fiction and, mm-hmm. and, and has has become part of the general soundtrack to it now. Yeah. Likewise, I think the space yes. elevator is the only logical way to do to, for it to work. You know, it's not going to be like. I mean, it's it's like Firefly. You know. People go on about how wonderful fireflies. I just find the economics totally implausible. Mm. You know, I mean, here they are in this in this spaceship. What does it run on? Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. That's it comes up, lands, it picks up a cow. <laughs> Explain the economics of this, please. If you've got that much power, you can sh- you, you you can fly cows through space. What else? You know, what more interesting things can you do with it? You actually don't need the cow then if you can do that. Mm. It, it's yeah, it's it just it was deeply silly. Although it looked pretty, but very very silly. Just um, yeah. well, I, I, I by <clears throat> sheer accident the other day watched Battle Los Angeles. Oh yes, I watched that on the plane. Um, okay, and uh, it's, I mean, it's it, which is which is a strange bad movie, uh, but it sets out to be a combat film with with a science fiction premise. But most of it is just street to street fighting for hour after hour after hour until we find out that these aliens who have built these massive war machines and it's, it's, it's a version of H.G. Wells that they're here for, for, here for our water 
And the scientist explains, we're the only place in the universe that has liquid water. <laughs> and the, almost anybody, I know, I know a seven-year-old in the audience is going to say, if they have those death rays, why don't they go melt some water somewhere? <laughs> yes. 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 And, yeah, and if they can use water as fuel, they can do anything. I watched it because on, on the plane, it, it, it's, a, it's a good plane movie. And I watched it because I had Aaron Eckhart, who I well, liked a very lot. Good, so, yeah, he, he almost sells the always movie. Aaron Eckhart, yeah. And, and it's about the end when they say, we've lost 20% of our oceans. Have you any idea how much water is in 20%? <laughs> where, where did it go? <laughs> it's made no sense. It seemed, like a, it seemed like somebody had pitched it as a video game that didn't get made as a game, so they turned it into a movie. That's exactly what it feels like. It feels like mm. uh, Call of Duty. Yes. My grandkids. <laughs> yeah, only not as good as Call of Duty. <laughs> uh. It, it is interesting that, 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 though, that lots of interesting science fiction is appearing in games. I was, I was in the bar talking, and we were all oh. enthusing over Portal 2, and what a uh-huh. brilliant, brilliant game, brilliant bit of science fiction, um, brilliantly written, and, and, and very good comedy all at the same time. A, a, a great piece of science fiction, and should be up for a should be up for Hugo next year, you'd think, as a game, if, if, if it's going to catch up. those things never are. Either. Yeah, yeah, but certainly it's a, a lot better than a lot of Doctor Who episodes. Yeah, well, <laughs> actually, that's that's one of the challenges for the you know the administrative field of science fiction. You know how you recognise you know, expression in science fiction when it doesn't suit the you know fit the normal forms. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was saying to Gary earlier in the week, uh, we have the third version of the science fiction encyclopedia coming out as a website, yeah. and mm-hmm. Gary said it'll be up for best related work next year, won't it? Of course. I'm going, well, will it? I mean, I need to go read the rules, but I'm mm. not entirely sure that it would be. It may not be eligible. Yeah. Well, I think one of the questions, and it has to do with this whole evolution of media, uh, what, what is a work? Yeah. Does something have to be completed to mm-hmm. be a work? Because yeah. the SFE will never be completed. Yeah. Yes, yeah, exactly. It's, it, it, just goes, it just goes through various editions. In fact, nominally, it could be a fanzine, <laughs> which would be the most bizarre interpretation. How? It'll be updated monthly, and no one gets paid. Yes. Fair enough. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, not really because there's other stuff, but anyway, it's amusing to think that could happen. But though I did hear some whisper that they've started a, I don't know the exact title of it, but basically a podcast category for the Hugos. Mm. Separate from, I guess right now it's fancy. I yeah. Guess, yeah. yeah, it's like a best fan dramatic something or other. That's terrifying. Fan dramatic, that's terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but oh. because... because Portal Two, you think would work as a, as a best related work? You know, yeah. it, it doesn't yeah. have to be in print. Though I can just I, I can just see the reply they'll get yeah. and try and give it away free with the Hugo voters back. <laughs> yeah, right. I think I not. <laughs> I will say the one thing that sort of is you know, stands for the SF Encyclopedia and maybe for Portal is they do say that you know the administrators listen to the voice of the voters yeah. if enough people nominate these things. Yeah, well, certainly, certainly it was one of the best bits of SF I, I saw or read or experienced yeah. last mm-hmm. year was Portal Two. It was. Yeah, really, yeah. really well done. Well, perhaps as we sit here on the precipice of the Hugos themselves, we might wind up. Uh, this will be the last podcast we do before the Hugos, so good luck for this evening, Mr. Wolf. Good luck for this evening, Mr. McDonald. Good luck for the evening, Mr. McDonald. Good, good, good luck, gentlemen, as well. Thank this you. Is, yeah, this is, this is the last time we can congratulate. Well, yes. No, no, we can, we're, we're fairly self-congratulatory. Yeah, we can congratulate. Yeah. Mwah, mwah. <laughs> we want to get as much congratulations in before the reason for them evaporates. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. For tomorrow we wait. <laughs> well, he flies away. Anyway, yes. uh, thank you very much, Ian. Thank you. And I'll talk to you next we'll time. talk to you soon. Okay.